Uh, welcome, Jim. Jim Golden. James Golden, right? Guten Abend, Herr Professor Reuter. Mine is Deutsch is nicht gut. As you know, we've had this conversation several times. You're, you're an actual professor, right? Uh, well, I'm a Herr Doctor. I'm not sure I'm actually a professor. Yes, I guess I am. Herr Doctor Professor. Isn't, <laughs> isn't that the highest honorific in the German language? I think that's fantastic. It is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I have met you via music, right? Correct. Um, at the Three of a Perfect Pair Camp. Um, mm -hmm. And you're a wonderful person. And I can't remember, like, we've known you for almost five years, I guess, right? Almost five years. Yeah, yeah. So, but we never really had the chance to talk about what you do. And I want to uh, remedy that today with this conversation. Awesome. And so, uh, can you give us, or me, first of all, uh, some sort of introduction to what you do? Sure. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And thank you, Marcus. It's, we haven't known each other about five years. I think we actually formally met. Um, I was following you on Facebook when you were working with the Crimson Project mm -hmm. and you were starting to build those beautiful touch guitars. And I you know, became very obsessed with having one. And so I sent you a request and said, could you build one for me? Mm -hmm. And I happened to also be going to the, I think my first camp was in 14, maybe. Yes. So mm -hmm. it yeah. could be six years we've known each other. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to you and I'm, you know, I'm a very amateur six string guitarist. Um, but so I was very, uh, the, the, the beauty of those instruments were amazing to me. And plus I was very intrigued by the tuning and the work you had done with Crimson Project and later with Stickman and other things. Mm -hmm. And so you and I actually had several very brief conversations about philosophy, psychology, music, and mathematics. So for me, I'm, I'm formally trained as an engineer and a mathematician. Um, and I work in computer science. And, uh, so technically I work for a... Um, a group on Wall Street in New York City where I look at uh, computational finance. So I have the, uh, they, they refer to us as quants, which is just literally an abbreviation for quantitative discipline, right? So we have some PhD and some quantitative discipline. Mm -hmm. um, but at heart, I'm, I, I think of myself and you and I've had this conversation as, a, as an epistemologist, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about how do we know what is true and then how do we know it and can prove it? And so the work I do primarily is in how do we use mathematics and computer science to understand what is actually true and then decide what to do about that. So technically I work in artificial intelligence. I, I have formal training in uh, machine learning and very early neural networks. I did that back in the eighties and nineties. And I spent a lot of my career working in biotechnology, which again, how do we know what is true in terms of how drugs work or uh, human biology works and the nature of disease. And then uh, maybe three years ago, I was recruited to start a company or help start a company and be the CEO that was looking at how we use epistemological methods and quant finance to make predictions about things, whether it's um, predicting how um, COVID will impact supply chains for manufacturing mm -hmm. or how yeah. we actually predict what is going to happen with a company and it's related financial instruments like stocks or bonds. So I'm, I'm technically a quant. I'm the CEO of a company called World Quant Predictive. Uh, and my job is to figure out how to use mathematics to make better predictions about everything from disease to energy to uh, what we call CPG, uh, retail. Uh, my, my real goal is I have a team of folks in uh, Hungary and Budapest and uh, New York. I'm currently now in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Vietnam, where we think very deeply about how to predict human behavior in aggregate. So 
there's a long-winded explanation. Wow, wow. Good, good, good explanation, though. So, so um, basically, uh, let's just say you're a scientist, right? Mm-hmm. So you're um, trying to make predictions in a scientific way. So you're, you're applying mathematics rather than pure mathematics. Is, is that correct? <laughs> it is. I mean, tr- truly, you know, if you had to ask me if, you know, if, if we had the time to do a deep psychoanalysis, I'm a very frustrated philosopher mm-hmm. uh, and, and frustrated musician. I'm a frustrated many things. Uh, but I actually use uh, branches of mathematics and, and logic. So there's an awful lot of logic like Bayesian inference and deductive reasoning to make predictions about things. I think the most interesting work we're doing now is can we really, I'm, I'm, I'm ever on the quest for evidence mm-hmm. to know whether something is true. Yeah. And that could be very deep philosophically, or it can be to say, how do we know which drugs are actually working in patients? Which procedures actually have the greatest benefit? Um, which sets of genomic targets are most likely to be um, have a biological action based on a drug's chemical structure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, I'm a, I'm a logician and a mathematician, but I think about scientific problems in those ways. Yeah. So um, when, I, when I think, when you use the word true, what is true, right? It's, which, is, which is wonderful <laughs> that we start from such a point, right? Um, for me, that 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 uh, expression is kind of based, like scientifically based, on the idea that you have experimental designs, mm-hmm. a methodology, um, where you you as the researcher can control the parameters uh, that then give you the results, where you then can some do some sort of factor analysis or whatever, some sort of statistic. Uh, 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 analysis or probabilities and you would then sort of like come up with hypothesis how you know like factors abc kind of like uh predict outcome x right and uh you know so we're trying i'm trying to actually turn that on its head just a little bit and i was going to start by saying you know, when we talk about what is true, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're a very good Lutheran boy. So you remember uh, Pontius Pilate saying, what are truths? Are mine the same as yours, right? Mm-hmm. And so we can go back 2,000 years to say, you know, what is actual truth? And of course, you know, you have the Greek philosophers and, and others. So what, what I'm most interested in is, you know, <laughs> so an- anecdotally, so I was finishing my PhD work in computer science and I was engaged to be married to a lawyer. She was a law student, just a, a wonderful woman. But while she was in law school and I was in uh, graduate school, we became completely diametrically opposed, right? And therefore, we, we're not married, but we're still very good friends. Uh, but um, for her, as a lawyer, I understood that she would decide something and look for evidence to back it up. Mm-hmm. I would make observations and then decide something. So it was literally, you know, a lawyer says, this is true and I'm going to prove it. And a scientist said, here's all these interesting pieces of information, what is actually true. Mm -hmm. So in in my work in AI, and I I guess I was very fortunate. So I'll I'll talk briefly about where we are in terms of artificial intelligence. So, you know, if if you look at the the news and you understand what's going on at places like Google and Facebook and... um, you know, other, other sort of the, the big tech companies, Amazon and others, 
they're, they're very focused on a type of machine learning called deep learning. And deep learning is something that's, it's been around a while. In fact, my PhD work uh, in the 90s started thinking about deep learning, but at the time we didn't have the computational power to build these very large machine learning algorithms and we didn't have enough data. So we were very limited. You know, I was, you know, I tell people I did most of my PhD work on, a, on an Apple Lisa, right? Which tells you how old I am. Um, but so we spent a lot of time, you know, trying to think about how we could use these algorithms to look at large amounts of data. But when I was doing my early dissertation work, there wasn't a lot of data and not a lot of computational power. So I think I'm fortunate because I started thinking about AI as they did in the 70s and 80s, which was in terms of logical frames or expert systems or symbolic logic, right? And that, you know, again, that, that very much influenced how I think about what I do. So what I really like to do is now we look at large amounts of data and ask the data to generate a hypothesis for us. Mm -hmm. So the computer platforms that we build are less about saying, I have a hypothesis, is it true? Which is the scientific method. Um, we as data scientists are saying, I have all of this data. Does it point me towards a hypothesis that I can then verify? And this is literally how the, the field of quantitative finance was invented. So for those of your listeners who are not familiar with quantitative finance, if you think about the stock market, right? So quantitative finance is where we actually look at a lot of data and let a computer tell us what direction a stock is moving based on momentum or factor analysis. Is, is Apple shares going up? Are they going down? What are the implications of the data about how many people are buying iPhones? And Okay. And that I mean, I mean that, that seems like easy to understand for me, the how you can kind of... Int interpolate and project data into the future yeah, right exactly. right so that's that's kind of like easy but when you say that the data itself suggests hypothesis mm -hmm. you know um we i think we need to define or, or try to understand what kind of hypotheses those are right can you give an so, example yeah sure so um uh, yeah, so we, we've been working on a problem recently that's very interesting. So, you know, clearly COVID, everybody in the world is impacted, musicians especially, but lots of people are impacted by COVID. And so when you turn on the news or when you look at things, even that are scientifically backed, right, um, we're, we're, we're daily generating hypotheses based on observational evidence on limited data size and then throwing out an absolute, which is clearly not an absolute, right? So we say, here's the percentage of people that have COVID, here's the transmissibility of COVID. And really I'm not negating those hypotheses, but they're being presented as fact. So mm -hmm. let's think deeply about some of the biology, right? So we've heard that um, it primarily affects people over 80 and it primarily affects people with certain comorbidities young people do not suffer, you know, like people over 65. And yet there's antidotal evidence of people in their 20s who have very bad reactions or what we call long haulers. So, you know, me as an engineer, I have to take a very dispassionate look at that and say, okay, what do we actually know about the data that we're collecting? Um, when you say uh, the conversion rate in the United States is 6.5%, right? you're not segmenting that conversion rate into people under 20, people over 80, people who have high blood pressure, people with diabetes, people who are perfectly healthy. So you have to begin creating segments. So you take that data apart and you say, okay, when I observe people over the age of 80 who have high blood pressure and type two diabetes, 
the morbidity rate in COVID is 45%. Mm -hmm. But if I look at people under 20 who are generally healthy, have no comorbidity or associated disease, you know, the, the, the fatality rate is closer to 0.3%. And so a hypothesis could be generated first to say these two groups of people are different, right? And then I have to say, how are they different? Well, we can say age, but age is not really, a, you, you can't prescribe a treatment based on this person's 22 and this person's 28, right? That's, that's not how it works. But can I then go find things like, there's some wonderful work that has been done recently that we're taking advantage of is, so let's take a look at the people that actually have a very poor response to certain um, treatments like intubation. Uh, and then we actually look at the data and say, here are other things associated with the data. So the data may give us a hypothesis that said um, people who are placed on their backs and intubated have a much higher rate of developing um, pneumonia as part of a, a comorbidity with COVID, while people who are laid on their stomachs and not intubated, but given sort of a, just pure oxygen, have a much lower rate. So a hypothesis is generated for us, right? Based on observational, observational data. What's really important is the human is never out of the, the conversation, mm -hmm. but our ability to look at large amounts of information and show outliers and just present things in a visual way allows a scientist or a physician to say, oh, look, look at this interesting observation. I hypothesize that people over 80 with type two diabetes who present with a positive COVID should be on oxygen two days earlier than if they did not have a comorbidity of diabetes. I recognize that's a very long and complicated answer to your question, but it's, as we present data, hypotheses are generated for us in our minds. Yeah, okay, so let's dive in deeper. So I'm just maybe probably gonna ask a stupid question, okay? So, but in, within, your, within your data, so right. how, how does, well, I know that it's in the end, it's, it's the artificial intelligence doing that. But if you would look at data, do you look at, say, like the, 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 the transients in the graphs? Like, like we, do you... we look at all kinds of things, right? We look at outliers. We look at how the data presents visually. We, so, you know, one of the most common, uh, one of the most common methods that we use in mathematics is just called clustering, right? How does yeah. data cluster mm -hmm. based on factors? Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, and, and technically that's not even sophisticated enough to be called artificial intelligence or machine learning. It's just, we call it K-means clustering. Yeah. And all that means is if I, if I take a pool of data, let's say, let's say I look at all of the credit card purchasers in Berlin this afternoon, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure the purchases would be wide, right? It would be diapers in your house. It would be coffee <laughs> in somebody else's house. It might be a new touch guitar in somebody else's house. And so we could say, well, what are the factors we look at, you know, what are the purchases they made? Who are the people that made the purchases? What uh, particular region of Berlin do they live in? You know, what, what are other demographics? How much money do they make? What is their occupation? What kind of car do they drive? Right. So there are lots of ways to segment the data mm -hmm. and those seg segments and those factors that, that tell us how to segment. Um, even when we don't know what's going to come out of it, let's just segment by age, right? So I'm, I'm fairly sure people of a certain age probably buy more coffee and um, download more music than people of another certain age that may, you know, be going to the pub in the afternoon to get a, you know, really good vison at the end of the day kind of thing. But as the segments come out, hypotheses are generated for us, right? So if, if I if I segment by age, I get certain behaviors. If I segment by income, I get other behaviors. If I segment my type of automobile, that actually could be a proxy for income, 
or it could be a proxy for which region you live in because maybe you live in a, an apartment complex that's very close to everything you need and you don't need to own an automobile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But so those clusters allow us to take a, 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 an analysis and just tease out for ourselves as humans. And, and so one of the things that humans are very, very good at, and because evolutionarily we were forced to be very good at, is pattern recognition. We're very good at patterns, right? And again, we might even we might even talk about that in terms of you know your occupation of music, um, you know. And you and I have talked a lot about music theory. It's how do we actually know what patterns of musical notes are pleasant, which ones are discordant, and which ones people like, and mm -hmm. those sorts of things. And uh, so again, we're we're just finding ways to do pattern recognition. And as human beings, we can only process a finite amount of data. So we use machines to cluster that data for us give us smaller groupings to think about, and then we come up with our own ideas about what works. And you know, again, in the work I'm doing, it could be which drug works and which patient at which time, mm -hmm. um, which um, kinds of lifestyle choices lead to likelihood of disease and not likelihood of disease. Uh, so it allows us to build models. I, I think it, it's important here to note uh, the group of people, I have a very talented staff and my, my chief technology officer and my chief research officers are both extremely bright. Um, but they, you know, they, they talk about all the time that all humans are modelers, right? We, we model constantly. We don't maybe think of that as modeling. Um, but when we think about consumer behavior, for instance, uh, if you go into your grocery store in the afternoon to, you know, pick up baby formula or diapers or whatever, you may observe other people. You may say, look, I'm the only guy in here this afternoon. It's mostly a bunch of women who are here buying diapers. You know, why am I doing this, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's a model in your head that said most people that buy diapers are women. That's a model, right? Mm -hmm. And we can empirically test that data by going back and looking, or test that hypothesis by going back and looking at all the data and say, oh, you know, actually 65% of people who buy diapers on a Tuesday afternoon in Berlin are women, right? And, and you, you actually have access to that kind of data. Well, so yeah, and so this is where things get a little tricky. We do, but everybody does, right? And so um, what's interesting is, um, you know, we can we can get into the area of privacy, which especially in Europe is very sensitive and California also sensitive, but all that data is available, right? And I could buy it simply from the credit card company, right? The credit card company will send me a list of every item purchased on a MasterCard in Berlin in the last two days. And I could buy that data, right? It's actually not that expensive. Mm -hmm. And it won't tell me that it was you. It won't have your name. It won't have yeah. your phone number. Right? But And it may not have your gender associated to it, but I can piece that together based on other things, knowing how many people want a MasterCard and what their credit limit is. So as we begin layering data on data and finding signals in data, we talk about signals or models in data and putting that thing together, we can make hypotheses about spending behavior and consumer behavior in aggregate. And then that allows you know, the, the, uh, the, the diaper manufacturer to send coupons to these people in Berlin who have MasterCards that shop on Tuesdays and you know, raise sales by fifteen percent over the next year. Those are the kind of things we think about. So, if when you have a new uh, customer client, or and um, can can you give me an example for a prediction that yeah. people ask you to make? No, I'll give you two. Right, that were so. COVID has been very interesting for us. You know, we assumed at the start of the lockdown. In fact, it was interesting when I was. Um, uh, when I was um, in March, I guess March 5th of last year, I was actually very 
very honored to present Grand Rounds at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And they asked me to speak on AI and the future of medicine, right? And, and you know, again, I was presenting to 300 physicians, so that's a little tenuous. I am not a physician. I'm, I'm really an engineer and a mathematician. But, uh, you know, when I flew home on the 6th, we sort of realized that was probably the last trip I was going to take for a little while because you know, we were starting to really understand the implications in the U.S. of the COVID infection. Um, but we got home, we're like, okay, uh, what does this mean for us? I mean, we had to even make our own prediction about what does this mean for my business? So what are the areas that we thought were going to be heavily impacted? Well, clearly we had started on a focus on healthcare and retail. More recently, we're thinking a lot about finance and energy, especially clean energy and where we can lend the power of prediction to do something really interesting. But the first question we got asked, it's still my favorite question. We were approached by a, a retail store, a large retail chain. And they said, we think no one is going on vacation this year. How much lawn furniture and barbecues should we stock in our stores? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great question, right? Because yes. it's, it's, it's wonderfully philosophically and psychologically deep. And yet mathematically, it's very sparse. Right? <laughs> and uh, so you're like, well, I don't know how much freaking, you know, well, so you have to go look. And, you know, first of all, is the hypothesis true? We don't think anyone's going on vacation this year. So suddenly now you're asking about airline travel and travel agencies and the price of gas and automobiles and where do people go and and are we seeing bookings in Florida and Disneyland go down or go up, right? So you have to break that particular interesting question. What, what we say in my business and my company, we say, how do we reframe any question as a prediction problem, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And so can I predict whether airline ticket sales are going to go up or go down? Can I predict whether travel routes are going to get canceled or delayed? Can I predict how people will react to COVID? Can I predict what the government will say about travel? Can I predict what the restrictions and lockdowns are in restaurants and hotels? You know, and then by the way, how does that all go back to lawn furniture? Okay, on, on this on this level, the prediction on this level uh, for a human being uh, would be pretty easy to predict sure. that that travel will get massively. But, but, that, but that doesn't go quantitatively. Yeah, sure. So you start with hypothesis. I'm not going anywhere. If I'm not going anywhere, my neighbor's not going anywhere. Uh -huh. My sister. So what, what we ended up having to do, though, is but how does that go back to the question of how much lawn furniture should we put in inventory? Yes. Yeah. Because they have to buy it. They have to manufacture it. They have to store it. All of those things cost money. Right. So we say if you order for your store you know, uh, uh, 28 lounge chairs for a pool, how long will it take to get here? How fast will it move? How many people will buy 28? Or is it really that people will buy 30 or 50 or 90, right? And, and how do you store that and move that, right? So it becomes a very nuanced factor-based analysis. You could call it AI. It's really most just really statistics. And yeah. at the end of the day, most AI is purely statistics anyway, right? Yes. But so it, it's, it's a really great question. Another question we got asked, which we were able to actually solve is we had a very large retailer in the United States that said, because of COVID, we cannot predict what the revenues are by store, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know how much stuff we're going to sell in this store in Chicago or this one in Minneapolis or this one in Fort Worth. And so they asked us if we could figure out a model that would give them indications of store behavior. So again, I've said before, we're trying to predict consumer behavior in aggregate, right? And, and it's important to note when I talk about healthcare, 
you know, I can, I can look at human beings as consumers of a healthcare system, right? So patients are consumers of a healthcare system. It, there's some nuance to that. But if we think about human behavior in aggregate in the face of certain kind of indicators, I can think about, you know, everything from energy to supply to uh, supply chain to manufacturing. So we had another, this retailer came to us and said, we have no idea how much we're going to sell of anything, right? And we sell a lot of stuff. Okay. And so we started looking at their data, which was really around, um, you know, what stores were selling and not selling and were they selling less aspirin and more sunscreen or less sunscreen and more aspirin or were digital thermometers flying off the shelves because everybody was worried about COVID. And, and really we had a very bright uh, person who was actually in one of our India locations who was looking at all of this different data. And so the way we work is we, we don't tell anybody how to solve the problem. We say, here's a problem. Here's the factors of the problem. And, and we want you to look at all this data and find signal that may either solve the whole problem or contribute to a factor in the problem. And we, we had a very bright young man in India, and he started looking at Zillow data, you know, which is the American real estate. It's a, it's a tech company that does pricing of real estates. And he was noticing in the data a signal for how people were listing the houses and unlisting the houses and relisting the houses and unlisting the houses. Mm -hmm. And of course, in, in the American uh, real estate market, real estate has become very hot again because people aren't going into the office, they're not competing into cities. And so they're looking for bigger houses or looking for a place where they can get kind of out of, you know, uh, places that don't have resources due to sort of the COVID lockdown. And he found that there was a pattern to how people were listing houses and unlisting houses that tied directly back to a zip code where these stores were located. Wow. And he was able to use that signal as a proxy for consumer behavior. Mm -hmm. And he was very quick to realize what we call it was a linear quadratic equation on Zillow data predicted what these stores were gonna sell or not sell. And that was really, really cool for me, right? So that means he's, well, I'm trying to imagine how it works, okay? So basically have the data, then you're running like permutations of, of factors that correlate and you're looking well, for signals, which is like, there's a high correlation here. And then you're trying to figure out what is the commonality kind of between we those. Computer, we let the computer, we let the algorithm figure that out. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's actually important and I think you'll enjoy this. When we set up our company, we, we did it a little differently and we learned, this is something we learned again from our roots in quantitative finance. So I work for a guy named Igor Tolchinsky who was the founder of WorldQuant, which is a, an asset management group or a hedge fund, a quantitative hedge fund. And he, in his experience, you know, it's really what can we learn from other people's experience that can be codified into a set of heuristics that we then learn to solve problems, right? How do we solve problems? And, and he has a very, he's a couple of very interesting hypotheses of his own that we borrowed from. And one is that talent is global, but opportunity is not. Right, meaning there's smart people everywhere, mm -hmm. and there's smart people for us in Singapore and in Vietnam and in Thailand and in China and in Russia and Israel and Germany and the U.S. And so, building on that thesis that talent is global, what is that 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 global talent brings us? If I have a, a mathematician in India, a mathematician in Vietnam, a mathematician in New York they will all take a different approach to solving a problem. And why is that? Because fundamentally they're culturally different. Yeah. Their experiences are different, their lives are different. So we talk about walking a different way to work, right? Everybody walks a different way to work. And that's a very 
in, in you know, again, when when you think about, or when most people think about mathematics and engineering, it's there's a way to solve a problem. Here is a, you know, four equations, three unknowns. Here's how, here's how we solve those equations. And we don't do it that way. We actually don't ask them to solve a problem. We say, here is a prediction problem that represents a business challenge. Here are 50 data sets, not just one data set. Here's real estate data. Here's credit card purchasing data. Here's uh, uh, mobile geolocation data from your phone. Here's satellite imagery data. Go find signal in that data. Go find a thing that might indicate. What the AI does is we take all of these different models by our different quantitative researchers who all walk a different way to work. And then it does some machine learning statistical analysis that kind of puts the models together in what we call an ensemble that actually gives us a much higher, much less fragile model that can give us a result. So, you know, back to your, your question and, and the example, he simply found that there was a correlation between Zillow data and sales data. Mm-hmm. And then we started, uh, so that's a hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. We think they're correlated. How are they correlated? Mm-hmm. And then the mathematics and the computer algorithms kind of guide us to this thing. And we created a model that was very, very accurate. I mean, within 2% of their actual revenue numbers, it said how people list houses in a neighborhood directly proxies how they actually buy and spend things in this set of retail stores. So it was, it was a very, to me, it was infinitely delightful, right? To understand that a different proxy data set, and we can talk more about what proxies are, um, but it was just, it was really interesting for me to say, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to posit in a very science fiction matter that, you know, we can predict anything based on using anything else, right? That the whole world is patterned and organized, but it actually is patterned and organized because we're evolved animals that look for patterns and pattern matching yeah. because we're very comfortable that way. So we're discerning out those patterns. So, so how, how does the engineer in India interface with, with the data then? So that, you know, so that's important. What we've had to build is a very collaborative in the cloud um, platform where all of our researchers and we have, I'm going to say at the moment, we probably have my head of research might argue. I think we're probably close to 25 to 30 researchers. You know, our goal is to get bigger than that because the more people looking at a problem, the better. Um, But wherever they are, they log into this cloud-based platform and my Chief Technology Officer Slava is very, very good. He and his team have built a platform that allows what we call data surfacing and ingest and then model surfacing and ingest, meaning a researcher can say, I'm looking at this problem. I know there's six other researchers working on this problem at this moment. These six are all looking at different data sets. I'm gonna go look at a different data set. Here are patterns that they found already. I can find some new patterns. And so they work in a very collaborative manner. So they're, they're partnered looking at different factors and then the machines are putting that all together for them and giving them results that they can refine their approach. So they're, they're looking for the patterns, how? Well, so the first thing, one of the first most obvious things we always used to cluster analysis. What are the factors in that data, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, in, in, and a lot of people have done this, some very nice work. So I keep going back to COVID because it's top of mind at the moment. But if you take your cell phone data, uh, which shows where you are at any given moment based on how you're bouncing off a cell phone tower, and you take credit card data based on where people are spending, you can actually see if people are social distancing, if they're all crowded into a bar, right? So again, you're looking at people in aggregate. So a researcher may start off by saying, I have this cell phone data, how do I cluster it into geographic region? And then how do I cluster it by 
how many people moved more than 20 feet in the last two minutes, mm -hmm. how many people traveled more than 10 miles in the last day. And you can start just generating. So, so, so again, that's that sort of walk a different way to work. We don't give them a preset of defined things to look at. We, we give them a prediction problem and say, go find signals in the data. So this, I think, is some of the genius that came from um, my boss's Igor's approach to quantitative finance is assemble a group of really smart people and don't tell them what to do. Yeah. And they start building models. Now, computationally, you have to think as they're building these models, some of these models are quite weak, right? Uh, we find people in this zip code only traveled six miles in a day and people in this code tend to travel more than 12 miles in a day. That's a signal. I don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the utility of that is. Mm -hmm. When I start combining it with other things, it says these restaurants are open and these restaurants are closed and these people have purchases of more than $20 and these people have more purchases of more than $30. And you start layering models on models. And this is where the machines are actually able to do a better job of keeping track of things. You start generating complex hypotheses like in this zip code that has 20% fewer restaurants People are spending more than $30 for takeout, but they have to travel at least 15 minutes to get that takeout. Again, that's just a statement. But where does it start taking me about behavior? Maybe, maybe people don't like driving 15 minutes to get takeout. Mm -hmm. So maybe mm -hmm. somebody is going to open another restaurant. So it, it, again, it's how we start thinking about all of these things in aggregate. So what, it, what would it take for the AI to also take the role of the researcher? So th this is a really interesting, so I was having a very fun conversation with someone this morning. Um, the AI or, or the, you know, and again, AI is just a set of statistical techniques on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so let, let's talk for a second about AI, because I know that's a subject you're interested in, I'm deeply interested. And we talk about generalized AI versus specialized AI. Special AI is what we do. We find signals and data and assemble the signals to generate hypothesis. Generalized AI is more of the science fiction sort of iRobot or HAL 9000 kind of thing. Um, it's very interesting to have these things generate signal, but what they're not good at is then taking all that signal and formulating a hypothesis because it has relatively little experience. One of the things I'm very adamant about, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I need to start doing a little more writing than I have in a while, is these days, everything looks like a deep learning problem, right? So if you look at Google, or you look at um, some of these wonderful companies, uh, there's, there's a number of AI companies that have gone public recently. They, they sort of use this one very specialized technique called deep learning, which is a large scale connected graph, a neural network that, that you know, ensembles and processes signal to make a decision based on training. So there's supervised learning, unsupervised learning. Your question is how do we get to better unsupervised learning, right? So how do we give a machine data and not only have it find signal or correlation or cluster, then also make a hypothesis? Mm -hmm. That's a much harder problem, much more in your realm of education than mine. Um, but I was on a phone call this morning with someone and I said, for me, the real definition of true AI is when a computer can understand metaphor and analogy, right? Yeah. Because I, we speak all the time in metaphors, right? And what we don't really have is a computational system or framework that allows a machine to make a metaphor, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very much, you know, I used an analogy this morning where we were trying to get out of a deal that had gone badly. And I said, you know, I'm ex-military. So I said, this is the equivalent of both my engines are on fire. My wing has been sheared off and I'm punching out of this aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. A computer would say, literally, you're punching out of an aircraft, right? 
And um, no, I'm making a metaphor or an analogy of, you know, saying this deal has really gone wrong. I'm getting out, right? And so when a computer can better understand metaphor and analogy, I will feel much more comfortable about its ability to make a hypothesis. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've been aware of these, these problems ever since reading Hofstadter's books, yeah. which was in the 80s already. Mm -hmm. So so he's, I mean, at least that's when I first was made aware of this problem. And, and so as far as I can tell, and you know, you're on the inside, I'm totally on the outside when it comes to artificial intelligence. Um, has there been any advance in the direction of... No, it's a great question. I'm glad you brought up Hofstede. So, I mean, his book, Go to Lesherbach, like everybody, just completely changed everything. And The Mind's Eye and Metamathical Themas. Yeah. I mean, he's such a brilliant author. I actually reached out to him in an email last year. I did not get a response from him. But, you know, he's, he's now in his 70s. And he's, I think, at Illinois. I think he's in Illinois or Indiana. In Illinois. Um, but it just, you know, he, he really nailed it, but there's not as much work being done in the philosophy of mind and AI as there is now, because back to what we talked about deep learning, everybody has a problem. They throw a lot of computational power out of it. Mm -hmm. A signal comes out. And if you improve something by 2%, that's still pretty damn good. If it's around spending or consumer behavior or advertising or whatever, like what Facebook does or Amazon does. So I, I don't think, I don't know, I have to go back and look because I've not spent as much time as I would like to asking that question because he really was getting into this idea of philosophy of mind, yeah. right? And and that's where I think, when I think about things like metaphor and analogy, that's where I get really excited about approaching generalized AI. So what I would posit as an untested hypothesis is so many people are making money on specialized AI. Not many people are thinking about the general AI anymore, though, to me, that's a much more interesting set of problems. Yeah, you know, like when um, we can talk a little bit about music now, mm. <laughs> when, I, when I heard about these approaches to kind of try to recreate compositions in the style of Bach with the neural right. network, for example, mm -hmm. uh, me as a composer and as somebody who like deeply understands music, it appears to be like absolutely the wrong approach to even use right. a, 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 a huge data approach, like like a black box approach for that, where the rules are pretty simple. And like any any uh, well-trained composer can write down five rules, let's say, with mm -hmm. which you can create a composition the style of Composer X, really. Right. And, and, and so I'm sometimes wondering... Like and that's why I asked about like what's the interface of the researcher and the and and the neural network, right? Yeah. Like because there's there's so much that, and I mean in a way you've already uh, confirmed that that it was that guy in India who found that relationship okay. that actually yes yeah. So so the um, I think the, the 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 challenge is kind of like to understand where do I apply like my my knowledge so and yeah let's talk about that right yeah so let's you know so i think about bach so like you i adore bach right yeah. i just absolutely adore bach um and so when you think about how bach would write for the harpsichord you know clearly it is a finite set of keys on a harpsichord mm -hmm. and he had particular western rules of music by the way i had uh, the opportunity to go to his house I think it's outside of Aachen. Where was it? Uh, his bon, uh, uh, no, I can't. I don't remember even. <laughs> yeah, so I'm thinking. You know, years ago, years ago, I went on a, a trip to Germany, and 
we were driving through, uh, in fact, it was funny because we, we had to go through Heisenberg, which made me laugh because I got, I sent a postcard <laughs> to my best friend from college. I said, I'm in Heisenberg and feeling very uncertain. And uh, only, only a few quants would find that, that. This is why I basically got no dates in college. Uh, but uh, so, you know, going to Bach's house and seeing the harpsichord and where he composed, right? So there's a finite number of notes as you and I, I've, you know, I've, you know, I've talked about before, there's a finite number of notes but an infinite number of combinations, mm-hmm. right? And so Bach, who was, you know, the great genius, right? And when I listen to his uh, cello suites or, you know, uh, you know the, the, um, uh, any of his compositions, Baroque compositions, you know, clearly there's a finite number of notes and there are patterns there. He used Western music as a pattern. He was an organist and he was a composer and a choir master and other things. And so sure, you could discern the patterns that Bach used in triads or um, certain keys or certain modes that he worked in. And of course, you know, when he wrote for the harpsichord versus the lute versus the, the organ, right? He again was working with the framework of what was possible, even though the combination was infinite, but there were heuristics in Western music for how he composed because as you and I recently discussed, right? We didn't want to use like the devil's chord or, you know, these, these, these sort of diatonic um, uh, combinations of music. So I could I could write a computer program very easily to look at you know a hundred minuets and say you know whenever he played a C there was a twenty percent probability he didn't play an A or if he played an A there was a certain probability that he would move to a D after that right and so you know those are patterns because we're humans and we we make and perceive patterns and that's why we love music so much and why it affects us in certain ways. What the computer cannot capture is the emotions that are evoked. By that set of patterns, right? Why is a discordant set of chords brings me up memories of things that I don't like, or why does listening to um, you know the cello concerto number one make me feel so uh, emotionally involved in that piece of music? And you know when I go and read biographies of Bach, I mean Bach was a deeply religious man. He had very you know German principles of that that time period, and you know he said, "I write everything for the greater glory of God." Right? That was his motive and his means and his desire to compose. So clearly that influence. I could say that 20% of the time he wrote down a C, he went to an A, but that means nothing in how we actually get to that, you know, particular set of compositions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you know, so your point about the computer is sure, I can tell you what I, I could write an infinite number of Bach concertos. And you know what might be a fun test is to have a neural network compose a Bach minuet and then play it for an audience of people that love Baroque music. Does it evoke a reaction? Do they get the same emotion? Because clearly so much of Bach's soul went into that composition. It was delightful to him in some way that was essential to his essence. Yeah. And are we actually able to capture, you know, are, are we, are we, for me, and <laughs> which has been very troubling. And sometimes when I listen to certain King Crimson tunes, right, I try to have mutuality with a composer. What what caused him to write this in a certain way, right? And I, I was very fortunate. Uh, not long ago, I got to spend a little time with Adrian Ballou here in Nashville at his studio, and he was, you know, told, he was writing this new piece of music for his new um, CD or his, his new album, and it was he was very very excited about this piece, right? Mm-hmm. And I was listening to it, and I was like, okay, this is sort of like the Beatles and King Crimson have a head-on collision in an automobile, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, but, you know, again, that's something that a computer would not be able to ca- capture because we know Adrian loves the Beatles and is profoundly influenced by them. We know he spent time with Zappa. We know he spent time with the Talking Heads. He spent a lot of time in King Crimson. 
But, you know, so it evoked a set of emotional responses in me that I think are similar to the emotional responses that he had in composing music. So we have mutuality as listener and composer. I'm not sure a computer could capture that. Okay, so like from my perspective, I think there, there are quite a few levels in between these extremes that you just listed, right? Mm -hmm. There could be like the purely uh, probability-based, mm -hmm. uh, uh, computationally uh, expensive approach to kind of like uh, crunch the data of like, say, how you know, like 120 minuets, right? And you would, you know, get like, and, and that would not really, I, I know that for a fact, I, there's no way that that could actually work, I think, right? And then you say, okay, it is because the emotional component is missing, right? I, I don't believe that. I believe, okay. I believe that there's, there's like a gray zone, like there's something in between. There is sort of like a technique. There are like, uh, um, as you say, human beings are pattern recognition machines like the mm -hmm. best there are right? right let's just say that and uh and and but we also like we'll also like to create patterns right we do and we we want we, we try to give the patterns meaning so that Correct. means that we create rules even if it's, it's just our very personal rule as a composer how we create patterns sure. and so if one as an uh, uh analyst of or analyzer of compositions of Bach writes down the patterns of the rules that he applied even mm -hmm. if those rules are not exactly the same that Bach really we don't even need to know if he, he if he was applying a certain rule or not but purely from the from the from from the on the rule based uh, perspective we, it's much easier to re, to create a composition that sounds like Bach, rather than trying to crunch all that data. So so, and we don't even have to be emotionally involved in that. That's what I'm saying. So there... so, so I'll respectfully disagree, right? So uh, I, I think and so. I, I've been thinking a lot lately about emotions and the role of emotions. So I've just told you, and we agree that humans evolved pattern matching because you know basically. <laughs> As I, I tell people, you know, for many hundreds of thousands of years, our goal was to get from that tree to that tree before we got eaten by the saber tooth, mate as fast as possible and find something to eat. That was it, right? And so we established patterns of, well, you know, if it's open savanna, I can probably see where that particular tiger is coming from. And, and so, you know, visual evolution, right, to be able to see things coming at you or things moving at a certain rate of speed, get you to that tree, to that tree before something grabs you. Um, emotion is very interesting. So, so two things very significant in my life that I'll talk about is, you know, one, my, my father, who I have a very, very good relationship with, very close to, is deep into his journey with dementia, right? So he was, a, he was an amazing man, military colonel for many years, very active uh, in national intelligence. And so, you know, a Cold War guy that really had a very senior uh, role in, in uh, the, the 60s and 70s, spent you know, two tours in Vietnam. And I'm watching his memory and cognition degrade. And it, it's personally quite painful, but it's also sort of fascinating as an AI guy. Because what I'm watching in my father is he's got fragments of memory that he's streaming together to try to make sense of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So for my father, who's 85 and in a wonderful facility in uh, Jacksonville, Florida, he's very much back in Vietnam. 
right? He's the world is, you know, in fact, when I go to visit him, I'll say, how are, how are you doing? And he will say, you know, you know, the Russians are here, right? And I'll say, sure, you know, and, uh, but it's, you know, he's got this very 1960s mindset, but he's, he's piecing those fragments together in a way to make a model of the world. So the world makes sense. So as a framework. And, you know, and he's, you know, he asked me about my mother who's been dead since 1997. And so he's missing pieces, but he's putting together a framework. But what's very interesting is I've started now, instead of listening to what he says from a fragmented memory framework, I'm trying to understand what is his base emotion? Is it fear? Is it happiness? Is it sadness, right? And I'm, we're very fortunate because most he's really happy. So he'll say things like, I'm in a Vietnamese prisoner of war camp, but they feed me really well. Right. It's just, and so, you know, these things resemble delusion, but it's fragmented memory. Mm -hmm. The other thing I did is when I when I took this job a couple of years ago, uh, it was a very new space for me, especially in, in the realm of Wall Street and finance. And so I uh, I found a wonderful psychotherapist. I decided that it was time for me to actually be very deep in psychotherapy because I wanted to understand my response to things. What made me angry? What made me happy? What excited me? What made me full of fear? And so we've have an amazing therapist that that I work with, and really it's pure psychoanalysis, almost in the German school of you know Freudian psychoanalysis. And uh, the role of emotion as an evolutionary factor that is a signal for us before we had language, before we had mathematics, right? And these emotions are extremely deep. So even people who are experiencing dementia or Alzheimer's disease still have access to those emotions. Yeah. So that tells me that's incredibly primitive in who we are. Mm -hmm. And it actually goes right to the animal mind, but you know, which can be either really good or not really good. But an emotion is basically a signal for something that's happening, telling your cognitive mind to take heed. So when we go back to our conversation about Bach, right? I still think there is an emotional component. You know, you could say, and I, I've watched you and Pat compose again on that spreadsheet, one of the first things I saw you guys doing in 2014, 2015. The mathematics is all there, but I think there is a reason why you move from a B flat to an E flat as opposed to an E flat to an F sharp, right? Or, you know, again, I'm messing up my metaphors, but the, <laughs> the idea that um, it evokes some kind of emotional response, which is sort of also like our pattern recognition ability to say, this is very pleasant to me. It reminds me of my time as a young man and those sorts of things. You, you know, like taking that example that you just mentioned, like Pat and me working on the piece face, for example, that's, that, yeah, that's right. that composition. Um, in, you know, like uh, that piece is like two thirds predetermined and one third mm -hmm. composed. Because okay. like I, you know, that there's like always that third note of a triad that I could freely choose, right? And but by doing that, and this is like where I say like I'm a pattern creator, like mm -hmm. I like it's my music, it's my taste. Like right. if if do I want to add like to the C and the F? Do I want to add an A flat or do I want to add an A? Right. That's right. and I decide that upon like okay the chord before was. D F sharp A, let's say, mm -hmm. right, and then I would prefer to have the A flat in the next chord, for example, right? right? right. So there is there is something that maybe uh, it's it's uh, the right word would be taste, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have a specific bias for right. things you like, right, and then and then you 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 kind of shape the world according to that. And I think that's what composers do. So if you have a way to sort of descriptive to describe what their patterns of taste are. And this is... Sure, yeah. but, right? Yeah. 
but when you go to your taste, sure, I can dissect Marcus Reuter's taste, right? But what I what I can't say is that particular riff reminds me of that girl I dated in college or that wonderful yeah, night exactly, where I exactly. yeah, yeah. those are the things you can't quite yeah. capture. Yeah, we're talking about that's that's like uh, two different things, right? I, right? To me, but like what I find interesting, like just coming back to the idea of uh, of uh, working with large data sets, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, dementia, right? And your father, let's say he has less access for, like to less data, right? For less, right. you know? And, and so, um, but the emotions, like, so, so the, the, uh, the link is via the emotion, you say. So, so I, might even, I might even say that it's not that he's less, less access to data. He still has his eyes and ears and data is pouring in on us. He has less access to the models that were built in his life of 85 years to give him information from data. So, you know, if we go to uh, what is courses from the rock, right? What, what, what information have we lost in data? What knowledge have we lost in information? You know, T.S. Lewis, right? uh, T.S. Eliot, right? Mm -hmm. Eliot, so a course from the rock, right? I love that quote and I've used it in the past um, because it's, you know, look at all the information we've lost in data, all things go to dust, right? So my father doesn't have access to his models anymore. So he's reaching for the first model he finds. And that model in his mind is I'm 33 and in Vietnam flying missions in a B-29 again, right? And so he has to, you know, there's a, again, a, a very interesting thing I got from my psychotherapist is we talk about the nature of delusions, right? Mm -hmm. And we all have delusions. Some of them actually inhibit us. Some of them are actually normal in allowing us to get through our lives, mm -hmm. you know, times of great chaos, but delusions remain consistent. I mean, that's part of the nature of delusion. Um, and so my father's delusions are consistent. And so when I talk to others who just, for instance, when my sister goes to visit him, you know, she's very grounded in reality and this is what's happening. And I'm doing a different experiment. I'm saying, let's go along with the delusion and see where it goes. It's not harmful or it doesn't seem to be harmful. Um, and so, you know, delusions remain consistent. So we might even say in composition, right? Your delusions remain consistent because you're yes. expressing that evokes emotional response. My hope is that as an audience or you as a musician to an audience, I have, I either have a similar response or I could have a different response as long as it's not revulsion, right? So, you know, if you're a piece of music, I mean, one, one of the things you know, I'm dying to ask Robert Fripp someday. And again, you know how difficult it is to ask Robert Fripp anything. Uh, but it's like his his joke about, you know, if you don't know what to play, play C sharp. And I'm like, why the hell C sharp, right? Why not? I can tell you, it's the first note of room, room. Oh, okay. And, right. and Tony always forgets. <laughs> and actually, for me, I would I would actually call it a D flat. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but so, and then that's where the joke comes from. Right. Like when you don't know which note to play, play a C sharp. So that's play the first note sharp. of room, room. Oh, okay. All right. I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't You know, yeah. I mean, but you know, the other, the other Tonyism that I really, really love is, um, you know, what was after Chicago? I was very fortunate to be in the audience uh, for the King Crimson show in Chicago, where I think he came in on either the wrong time signature or he came in on the wrong note. And, you know, he made a, he made a joke that said, you know, when King Crimson goes off the rails, it not only takes out the station, it takes out the whole village. Right? <laughs> and I, I was so fortunate to be in the audience for that. And it was, you know, as, as an audience, I was, it was awesome. Right. <laughs> you know, Hey, I, I have to tell you a story. Um, my friend Trey Gunn, um, oh, yeah? 
few years ago, actually, also just a, a week before we saw King Crimson show in Seattle together, he played a show there. And he had his new setup with laptop and in-ears, and he was like creating all the tracks on the fly, looping himself and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, he started playing this piece, and there was something wrong with the computer. So mm. the audience did not hear what he was creating. You only heard... You, you, you didn't hear anything that was looped or recorded as he was playing. So you only heard that one part. But he didn't know because he was in, in ears and he heard everything. Right. So he performed the whole piece like in front of an audience that where it was just like a note there, a note there, then like like 30 seconds of silence. Like <laughs> it was they, absolutely they fascinating. Were, they they all they all thought they were at a Philip Glass concert. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was fascinating. But yeah, yeah, there you go. So but let me I, I don't know. I just wanna I just wanna try to understand better so basically what you're saying is that your researchers they mm -hmm. they take the, the the role of the uh emotional pattern recognizer who uh makes hypotheses based on the signals that you see mm -hmm. right and then then how how because like i'm really interested in that how sure. is that being fed back into the system sure. Yeah, so let me let me actually tell you the story about how I kind of that was a very much eureka moment. So when Igor Tolchinsky recruited me to come uh, be the CEO and start this company with him, excuse me, um, the first thing he did is he said, "I need you to fly around the world and see what I've already built." So when when Igor and I met and we met at a at a, a business conference, he said to me, he said, you know, I, I think what I have built for quantitative finance has utility outside of finance. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, maybe, but I, I don't really know what you built. And when he asked me that question, in my mindset as a technologist, I was thinking very technically, what, what software have you built? What data assets have you built? What algorithms have you built? And really what I ended up learning, and I don't know whether he was thinking this at the time when he asked me, is what he built was quite honestly a set of philosophical frameworks. And I, I, I later realized was a set of epistemological philosophical frameworks, which has become very important to me and how I am, how we're trying to achieve success with the company. So I, I, you know, I get on a plane and I, I fly around the world, right? I fly to China and then from there to Singapore and Thailand and Vietnam and then Hungary and then other places, because what Igor has done is he has um, created a global group of people to try to find patterns in data mm -hmm. and what he calls alphas, right? So the, these number of alphas and then in, assemble those alphas together into a set of models that actually allows us to make predictions. So I'm flying all over the world and I'm delighted. Right? I'm very happy to be traveling and I'm in China, which is wonderful. And I was in Singapore, which is an amazing place. And then Vietnam and Thailand. And so in all these places, I was meeting these incredibly bright quants. And so, you know, the average quant on, on the hedge fund side is roughly 28 years old. Okay. Um, they're, they have a PhD from Stanford, or MIT, or Caltech, or Berkeley, or wherever, in some quantitative discipline. Physicists, mathematicians, operational researchers, um, yeah, chemists, you know, all, all kinds of amazing, bright young people. Um, and they're, they're, you know, what, what Igor did, again, part of the brilliance of setting up this company was if you're a Vietnamese student and you're finishing a PhD in quantum physics at Berkeley and you want to go home, 
right? And and so he said, sure, we'll just open an office around you. Go back to Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, we'll pay you very well. And, you know, and then we'll find 10 more like you and, and set up a little subunit there mm-hmm. where you guys can collaborate and compete on finding these models because the way in finance it works is the quality of their models to generate alpha or profit from a set of trades goes to their bonus and, and that's how they get paid. Mm-hmm. So they're both, they're both collaborative and they're competitive. So it, it's, it's basically, you know, it, it, if I take 10 exceptionally bright people in Vietnam and I ask them to solve a problem, they'll collaborate for the first two days and then they'll go to their separate places and compete against each other. Now, if I multiply that by 50 and take the same group in Moscow or Berlin or Bangkok or Budapest, right? They'll do the same thing. And then you have them collaborate and compete against each other. So I was in, my chief of research and I continue to debate this. We were either in Bangkok or we were in Ho Chi Minh City. I can't remember. And there was a young man who had been the top modeler in the company for three months. And that's a serious statement, meaning his models beat all other models in predictive accuracy. And there are tens of millions of models and hundreds of researchers. So this guy was the best three months in a row. In finance, three months is a lifetime, right? That's a quarter. And so I got a chance to meet him and we had coffee and I said, you know, what's your, what's your secret? And that's when he said, every day I walk a different way to work. And I had an almost eureka moment. And then I said, help me understand that. And he said, well, some days I ride my bike through the park. Some days I walk, sometimes I take a bus. And then when I sit down in the morning and open the data, I have a completely different view. Mm-hmm. That really was a eureka moment for me because he was thinking about it purely as a a discipline, a practice for which he then built his, you know, algorithms. And for me, it was a complete revelation on how our minds work, whether our mind is, you know, and you can go to Robert Fripp's practice, right? It's, it's whether our minds are chaotic or calm, or we're thinking about, you know, what happened the day before, or you left your house and the baby's crying and your partner's yelling at you and you have to get to work. Uh, And it changes your framework for how you see the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And of course, most of that is emotion. Right. So you come and you're calm, you come and you're angry, you're calm and you're sad, you're worried about a thing, you're fearful about another thing, you're excited about something that's happening later. That completely changes your cognitive ability to build a model for how you see the world. Your delusions are intact, but they're still delusions. And so that gave us framework for how we find signals and data. So to your technical point about how they do that, he may establish a model. And these are very, very simple models where he says a technology stock that is up four days in a row will be up on the fifth or an energy stock. Has, that does, is, does, is that being written in code or how do you write that down? It's actually written in code. It's a very small algorithm that says, if this thing is up four days in a row, it'll be up fifth day in a row. Yeah. And that is, what, that is what I would call a very weak model, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, I, or I would say a mother of two who buys diapers on Tuesday will probably also then buy diapers on the following Tuesday, mm-hmm. right? That's a very weak model, but it's a model, right? And so that alone, I wouldn't price diapers or you know predict how much inventory of diapers I should hold in a drugstore. But when I start putting other things in that say people buy more diapers in September 
than in March. Well, is that a fact of more babies are born in September than March? And then I have to go find other things, right? I can find these weak signal in data, but it's how I assemble those. And that's where the machine becomes useful, right? So really at the end of the day, our models are libraries of Python code, right? That are very standardized where there may be a few lines that actually, you know, talk about the factors and the clusters and sort of how the models are assembled together. So what we're building really at the end of the day is, is, is a code library where those pieces of code are inputs to other pieces of code where there's some very advanced machine learning uh, that's actually assembling those and ranking and stacking. And so in finance, we talk about back testing. So every time you come up with a new model, you have to back test it against not only all the data that you currently have, but all the other models to see if they're correlated or non-correlated. So there's some, you know, simple but wonderful, elegant mathematics that go behind it. But so what we're building is a code library that sits out in the cloud and perceives the world. Now, this is where I'm very excited about what this means for AI, because like humans, we're not building the mother of all algorithms. We're building millions of smaller algorithms and let them compete against each other and collaborate together to find novel patterns and patterns on patterns, yeah. right? And that's where we can actually make an assessment. But again, for me, what's very fascinating is to go back to that sort of epistemological framework and say, how do we know something is true? Mm -hmm. Or I guess in reality is, how do I know that my delusions are consistent? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I see music the same way. How you know, when I hear a song, why does it remind me of my high school sweetheart or a wonderful summer or a horrible event, right? So, so I, it's just an, an idea. So if you say that it's so important for your researchers to um, be able to put themselves in a different seat, let's say, put a different hat on, like, mm -hmm. right? Um, like the first thought that comes to my mind is why, well, maybe some, re you know, if... I could tap into researchers that don't know how to write code, that don't know how to think in code. Right. And you build, then you have other people who translate their findings into code, and you will probably get much better predictions. Absolutely. And so this is really important. So we've talked a lot about how we actually would. So if, if we believe what I said is true, that everyone is a modeler, right? How do we capture everyone's model? And we talk about this in my shop a lot because, you know, I have my chief of staff, who's not a quant, he's a, he's a business guy. I have my admin, who's wonderful, a young woman. She's not a quant, but, you know, she has other, you know, uh, different education. How do I allow them to capture their models? And so we've talked at length and something that we're planning on doing is actually creating what we call an expression abstraction framework, right? an expression abstraction framework, and we use this as an example. So let's say I'm a cashier at Walmart, right? In the United States or any, any, you know, any large retailer. And I notice that women who shop in the afternoon that have at least two children buy more apple juice than orange juice. That is an observational model. Now I have to test that and I have to know how statistically accurate it is. But what I want to be able to do is have that cashier be able to abstract an expression because that is a mathematical expression. She doesn't think about it that way. But so we've started working on what we call an expression abstraction language, which just says something like women purchases children greater than two, time between two and four equal apple juice, right? <laughs> so that's a very crude logistical. 
Mm -hmm. But we want to be able to create that abstraction. And then it's very easy now for that to be encoded by a machine. We don't need a human to do that. It could mm -hmm. just take that abstraction layer, just put it into code, and then it can go back test it and come back and say, this is true 28% of the time. Well, that's not bad, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if I have another cashier that's saying, you know, um, women who buy at least two bags of this potato chips also buy ranch dressing, right? <laughs> but, but no, these are really important. Right? It because is, I know, are, I know. We are pattern generating, pattern recognizing. Patterns make us happy, right? Mm -hmm. Think about listening to Bach, a well-tempered clavier, Anna Magdalena, right? It makes me feel wonderful. Mm -hmm. Some of that is simply the emotion of what that stirs up in my memory of being a child and my mother playing it for me. Others is just the pattern really calms me down quite a mm -hmm. bit, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, to your point, if we can get this expression abstraction language correct, everyone's a modeler. Now, maybe, now I'm giving away my secrets, maybe I'll create an app and put that out in the world. And if, you're, if, you're, if your model is actually used, I'll pay you two cents on every time I actually use it. And maybe you find $25 in your PayPal account every week, right? But that's Sounds what, like so a good idea. It's a very good idea. We'll yeah. split the company. I'll buy more touch guitar. So, um, but you know, we 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 you know we think about you know in our work of what we call our global research network, which is really bright quants in Vietnam and India and Thailand and and Russia and other places. Um, you know, they're doing it at a very professional level. Imagine if I could do that at a at a you know not professional quantitative mathematicians but give that to everyone. Now we talk about crowdsourcing, right? So people do crowdsourcing a lot and there's something called decision markets. I used to play with a lot, maybe 10 years ago where, you know, people could actually, you would pull a thousand people. What do you think? Hey, I have what an do idea have? for you. Dude, What's that? Uh, you should invent rather than the app. Why don't you uh, use the capture idea, like of a capture, uh, like a recapture. Do you know that? Mm -hmm. Like where, on the computer, when the computer asks you, are you human or, or please select okay. all images with traffic lights and stuff. And you basically put a prediction problem there hmm. to, uh, and you get like millions and millions and millions and well, millions so of people. Thing, right. So, so, you know, <laughs> we think about that in terms of, you know, our global network of quants, but how do I do that for everybody? So this is a little different than just a prediction market where you're saying, do you think this will happen or not happen? Right. Which are quite good. Cause again, we don't know why we recognize a pattern. We just recognize a pattern. Um, but if I can actually do this with this expression abstraction language and and your 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 example, I think you could generate some very interesting and very profitable sets of patterns mm -hmm. that allow us to predict what humans are going to do in aggregate. So, you know, to your point, that's a very interesting way to think about, you know, are you a human or are you a robot? Well, I am a robot, but this is how I recognize these things. Mm -hmm. Um but it, you know, it, it's the power of prediction in aggregate and at scale, knowing that all humans are modelers and all humans have an evolutionary propensity to pattern because it's why we're still here, you know, that we can actually capture and then make more predictions. So, I, you know, I, I, so, you know, back to your earlier point, all humans are modelers, right? Yes. Now, let's think about what that could mean for music. I mean, that might be actually something interesting that you, you know, say after an A note, should I play a be flat or should I play a C, right? And so Yeah, but uh, I think you, you've already, like with what you've just explained to me, that basically the the researcher creates a rule in code and mm -hmm. then the uh, the AI, right, works with that. Right. Uh, 
um, you could do the, do the same with Bach's pieces. You know, that the, the researcher would write down those rules that I mentioned before as code, and you would have like many researchers doing that, and, and then the, probably the computer could actually create something that is of well, value. And, and we, we've done that, right? So the, the debate I'm having with my boss is, you know, the boss is saying, let's do that with 20,000 people. And so my question, again, as a mathematician and as a guy that, you know, has to pay the payroll, um, you know, is 20,000 better than 200? Is 200 better than 20, right? What is the asymptotic sort of curve on the value of it? Well, we know as like uh, I study statistics. So I remember that, that the uh, number of people you need was for a, for a prediction with like, uh, I don't know, 5% error rate, like was something like 60 Right. Yeah, like you don't really if you if you can control the parameters uh, of an experimental design, let's say, it, right. it really comes way down to something like like a number below a hundred, really. But the question but, is yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say the question for me is right, so I'm doing something I would call expert predictions because everybody I bring to the network is an expert in some field, right? So maybe I can lower it. But again, I'm not defining the scientific problem. I'm saying go out and find me signal. Exactly. And bring yeah, yeah. So what's the answer to that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, that's a, a very different approach. I was also uh, wanted to ask you, like, in um, I don't know if that this makes sense, but if somebody asks you for a prediction, or the way that I would approach it as a human being is, I would I would just make a list of potential outcomes right. that I can that I can sort of imagine, let's say. As, so even even before um, asking the computer, I would kind of like have models that are already, you know, like that are already predictions, basically. So, so this right? is very right. And so one of the interesting things that we've learned in finance is we have models that eventually become fragile or brittle. Right. And what we mean by that is it may work for a while and then it stops working. Mm -hmm. but here's an observation that we've had, which. You know, we, we haven't done the autopsy on it because, you know, we're, we're busy solving problems and, and, you know, running a business. But some of those models eventually start working again, right? And they may work months from now or years from now. And so, you know, again, you know, working in sort of the business and finance, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. But for me, I'm deeply delighted by this idea that, you know, old ideas, you know, something old is new again. Then you need to find the patterns and how these cyclically repeat, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and <laughs> some of those are very long tales and some of those are very short tales. <laughs> history repeats itself is not, history repeats itself is a model, right? Yes. That actually is a model for how things work, right? Yeah. Or what we call the safe harbor, which says, you know, just because it's worked in the past doesn't mean it works in the future, but it probably will, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Probably has its own parameters around it. Yeah. So when your definition of behavior, like you used the word that was like uh, an hour ago or longer, right? You, you said like you're predicting behavior. So when you say that, you're you're basically predicting an outcome. Yeah. So so like like customers buying TV sets from Amazon, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yeah. So I am so, looking at it is because again. At the end of the day, our business is transactional. Amazon wants to sell more TV sets or spend less on shipping or buy cheaper TV sets or whatever. So 
this is a good place to kind of get back to our sort of human behavior framework, right? The things that we are able to predict really well are demand, revenue, and risk. We, we sort of, I mean, it, it's very transactional, but we, we drop the whole world into those three buckets, right? What is the demand for a thing? How much are you willing to spend on a thing? And what's the risk of a person either buying or not buying the thing? Or, you know, uh, and then you can get very subtle and say, what's the risk in lending someone money to buy that thing? And how do we frame that credit in a way that allows a person to buy a thing, but then be able to pay the bills over time that generates, you know, a 2% profit margin or whatever it is, right? So again, demand, revenue or price and risk. Those are the three things real. So all of that, of course, leads to an outcome, meaning they'll buy more TVs or they won't. They'll borrow at 8% to buy a TV. Um, they'll pay cash for the TV. Certain number of people will borrow and not be able to pay the bills and you have to repossess the TV. You know, what does all that mean in terms of an action? Yeah. So the layers of outcome are finite, but large. Um, and then the parameters that impact that are maybe infinite large. And then again, it's where those patterns that actually tell me statistically what I should do. So uh, you said that this this approach basically like comes from your your boss like did he mm -hmm. but in the quant world right mm -hmm. and so um, what I'm interested in is this idea of having a person predict mm -hmm. how the stock market will change or specific right. stock will change right mm -hmm. um, has been around forever I guess yeah. but there must have been a qualitative uh, a, a drastic qualitative change in these predictions once a technology or computers became available. Mm -hmm. I'm just assuming that, but I guess it must be sure. must be correct, right? You know, the reason why, and I, I talk when we generally talk about the field of AI and technology, the reason why it's hot now is, and, and literally, you know, so I, I did my bachelor's work in the 80s and then my master's work in the 80s and my PhD work in the 90s. And you know, we went through a thing that we called the AI winter, right? Because we were all AI guys in the 90s, then nothing happened, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and really what changed, why we suddenly have the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazon is simply computational power and, I mean, huge computational power at very small cost, right? Moore's law or, or other yeah. heuristic. And then availability of data, right? right? We just have a lot of data. I mean, when I was doing my, my PhD thesis was trying to find patterns in DNA sequencing. So we're very early in biotech looking at the human genome program. And I was using neural networks to try to find signals in these very rough crude instruments that were sequencing DNA. I mean, now, you know, now it's brilliantly done. Um, but it was, you know, there was not a lot of ability of data to build what we call a training set. So supervised learning or unsupervised learning. Now data is infinite, right? I mean, every human being, oh my God, the amount of data we throw off, mm -hmm. we, we refer to this as, as um, uh, data exhaust. Another thing, interestingly, you know, in fact, now uh, maybe this will help elucidate our comment on um, sort of my researchers during multiple models is there was, there was a phrase a few years ago, which I liked a lot that said more data beats better algorithm. And what the sort of venture capitalists and, and founders at that time meant was, if you have a whole lot of data, my algorithm doesn't have to be perfect, I can still get really great statistical accuracy on making a decision. Mm -hmm. um, where we're trying to change it up a little bit is we're now saying more algorithms beat more data. Meaning we have hundreds or thousands of these models generated by different people using an expression abstraction language or by you know, my advanced quantitative yeah. modeler. 
And that's exactly and, what I was saying about Bach's compositions. Exactly. Yeah, but again, so you know, is we should write that code. We should generate the next version of a well-tempered clavier, and then we should give it to the audience and say, "Do you feel anything?" <laughs> I mean, in in finance, when when did when did the computer uh, aided prediction start? Uh, so you know, if you go back and look at quant finance, uh, and the field is, you know, I say it's ancient. It started in like the late '90s, right? So uh, really in the 2000s, so you know, there's these wonderful quantitative finance firms, a company called Renaissance Technology, the guy named Jim Simons, who is like the God. He, in fact, there was a big announcement yesterday that he's retiring at the, I wanna say he's in his early eighties. Yeah. Uh, but he was sort of the real first guy to figure this out. There was another brilliant technologist guy named David Shaw, started a firm called DE Shaw. Uh, and he went on interestingly, he made a great deal of money in quantitative finance but he's gone back to Colombia to understand protein folding. I mean, he, he he made a great deal of money in quantitative finance, but he returned to his love of trying to understand biology based on similar so did, principles. Did he did he make AlphaFold? He, he, well, he actually, he was not for AlphaFold, that was Google, but he's been working on a, he, he actually created a company called um, Schrodinger, I think it's called, yeah. uh, but it, it's a protein folding modeling kind of thing. Uh -huh. there, there's a, another company called Two Sigma Ventures, which, and Two Sigma Capital, Again, two brilliant mathematicians. So this has been around a while, but it's really been working well for ten years, right? So, but it's it, so it's relatively new, but but relatively old. But but <laughs> you know, again, you know, if you think about a quarter as a lifetime, right? Think about ten years. Um, so yeah, quantitative finance has been you know, and again, it's interesting because you know, if you go back and look at Warren Buffett, who's one of the great old school. Um, uh, fundamental investors, right? Look at a company, do they have good numbers? Are they expanding? Do people like their products? Warren Buffett clearly made a ton of money. But, you know, Jeff Bezos got his start at D.E. Shaw. He worked for Quant Hedge Fund. Oh, I see. And his, you know, his ex-wife, McKinsey, they were both at D.E. Shaw doing quant finance. And then they, you know, went over and built Amazon. So, one of the reasons why I'm incredibly fortunate, right, is I started life as a technologist and a scientist, and I'm only recent to quantitative finance, but the lessons learned there, it's just a different way of walking to work, right? They think about problems in an entirely different way. Mm -hmm. And it can be argued that, you know, the best and the brightest left research to go to Wall Street, make a ton of money. I have nothing against capitalism. But now some of them are going back, right? And I think they bring this very different perspective mm -hmm. of how we solve problems, right? And, you know, when you think about quantitative finance, it's, you know, so you, you think about the plumbing. When I say the plumbing, I mean the IT computational plumbing. Um, you know, you think about a quantitative hedge fund that may have millions of models that are building portfolios that are trading in millisecond to minute intervals, right? So you got really good at looking at a lot of data fast to make a decision. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really want to bring that to healthcare. I mean, a lot of people are thinking about IT. There's some wonderful people working in healthcare IT or ways of how we look at large amounts of data to understand disease and progression of disease and treatments and protocols and therapies, you know, but I'm kind of looking at the quant finance model and saying, these are these brutal quants that are very good at finding pattern, let's turn their attention to things like healthcare, mm -hmm. um, understanding of disease, COVID response, problem solving like vaccine distribution, right? I think mm -hmm. you'll get you'll get an, an urgency 
that you have not seen before because these people are used to working in a very urgent, short-term transactional environment. We all walk a different way of work. Are you still kind of like well connected to your roots when it comes to your work? Yes. I, I mean, so if you turn my roots from um, computation and engineering and mathematics, yes. My company has strong roots from quantitative finance. We have a number of ex-quant finance people there because they give us a very interesting perspective on both technology and on how we think about data. Um, and, you know, I'm still, you know, I mean, having... do, do you still get to research yourself? I mean, do you have I, experience? I don't. And so I'll, it's, you know, I've heard this said before, and now I'm living it. The CEO is the least fun job in the company, <laughs> right? And, but, but yeah, you know, I, I'm the guy doing the podcast with you. So clearly I have the most fun of the company. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, my, my, uh, my brilliant, brilliant quants um, are looking at really, and they're having fun, right? So when I, when I get a chance to talk to the whole team or when I get a chance to um, talk to them individually, and now that we're all spread all over the world by COVID, it's harder to do. Well, it's actually easier and harder to do. But we used to get together and 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 uh, you know have events and dinners and cocktail parties and things. It's you know they tell me they're having a lot of fun, right? Mm -hmm. Because they get to think deeply and solve interesting problems. And, you know, again, I have to tell you, you know, we're working on very important problems in healthcare and COVID and how we look at medical records. But forever, the funnest problem anyone ever gave me was. We think no one's going on vacation. How much lawn furniture? Yes. Should... <laughs> and, and again, you know, anyone listening to this will think, you know, Jesus, you know, what's wrong with you, right? But you really try to break that problem down, like really get a cup of coffee and think about that. Like, huh, that's a really interesting question. So right? did you did you solve that question? We, we did. We created an inventory sort of algorithm for it. And we, we didn't take it as far as I would have liked to. Uh, be, because in this case, there were a number of humans that just said, we can make a good enough guess, right? Yeah, so yeah. there are, you know, there's a wonderful thing in mathematics, as you know, that says just because it is beautiful doesn't mean it is true, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Which I also, I just, I could sit all day and think about the problem. Right? Mm -hmm. so you think about that in terms of music, just because it's beautiful doesn't make it true. Well, what is true? Is your mind the same as yours? And so we, we did an example of that and it worked and, but other people came along and just made a guess and it was good enough. Right. And so, but you know, the problems deeply fascinate me because it simply goes to the nature of belief and our accepted communal delusion and our framework and our pattern, and then what we do about it. Right. And so it's both emotional and rational it's philosophical and mathematical. It just, I'm, it just, it still delights me to this day, even though it was like eight months ago. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. You know, like one of the, uh, I like maybe 15 years ago, I started saying that I'm not interested in beautiful music, mm -hmm. exactly for the same reason that uh, I don't experience it to be true anymore. Because even even something like beautiful music becomes a model that mm -hmm. then people follow, and where it's doesn't have to be true anymore. It, so so I, I, I moved from talking about beauty to elegance, right? We talk about this in physics, the elegance of a solution. Yeah. Now there's a wonderful phrase I learned a few years ago. There's a wonderful mathematician. I wish I can't call up his name at the moment, but he wrote a book called Not Even Wrong, mm -hmm. right? And, and it was basically his critique of string theory in, in, in quantum physics. 
and a very hard book to read. I, I had to read it twice. And I'm not sure I completely got it. Uh, the mathematics was, was quite advanced, but his, he had this wonderful phrase, and I don't think it was his, he learned it from somebody else, that said, that idea is so bad, it's not even wrong, right? Yeah. Meaning to be wrong, there has to be a framework or a, a foundation there. And so, you know, I love this phrase, not even wrong, but I, I think a lot about the, the elegance. So, you know, I, I mean, I had, you know, please don't tell Tony and Pat, but there's some King Crimson music that makes my skin crawl, right? But it's, it's, but it's, you know, but it's quite elegant, right? So I have this great appreciation of it, right? It's also why, you know, I've told Adrian here in Tennessee, I said, I have one goal in the next year. That's for you to teach me how to play E because mm -hmm. I can't get it, right? There's something about E I can't get. And uh, it's quite elegant. I don't actually even like the song. It's like Fracture, right? I'm not even sure I like Fracture, mm -hmm. but it's now it's become so elegant that it's like Everest. I will die on that goddamn mountain, right? To try to prove that. That's something to do with my own ego and my, my therapist can help me with that. But anyway, so that's, you know, elegant versus beautiful versus true. Yeah, but even even elegance, you know, doesn't mean it's true, right? Right, it doesn't mean it's true, but it it's still elegant. Yeah, it's yeah. where we don't get confused. You know that I don't know how this saying goes, but like like symmetry is kind of like the art of the simple man, mm -hmm. right? Right, and I I like I like symmetry. You're evolving, <laughs> right? Right, it doesn't have to look the same. We're, we're you know again, and and you have to go back and say what emotion does that evoke when I see symmetry, and where does that impact my ancestor six million years ago who was just trying to get from that tree to that tree without getting eaten, right? So or find the right mate or find a source of food or whatever, right? And and those kinds of questions I think are deeply elegant and I love thinking about them, right? So it's, you know, one day when I'm done being CEO, I think I'll just go somewhere and think about these problems and figure out how to play fracture, right? Those are my two bucket list goals. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So, so do you think, do you think in code? I don't, uh, I used to a long time ago. I'm, I, you know, my, my coding skills are well out of date. The young people that we're bringing up are just absolutely amazing. Oh, I'll tell you something interesting because yeah, I want to talk about one other thing. Um, so I, I don't think in code. I, I think in symbols and I think in symbolic logic. Uh, I, you know, it's funny when I was young and it, now that I've had some chance to get older and research some of these things, I used to think when I was younger or I was studying mathematics and physics, I, I would think of myself in two parts, right? One was me and I, right? Everyone has a sort of emotional response to things. And then there's sort of the deeply rational things. And I, I don't, maybe every young person goes through this, but as a physicist and mathematician, I thought very deeply about my approach to the world, right? And of course, Star Trek was out then and Spock was all rational and, you know, we mathematics. And I remember being, you know, this completely egocentric prick in my 20s where I was a mathematician. I have a very good friend, you know, who was one of my good friends in college, who's a physicist now. Uh, and he works uh, on, um, looking at atmospheric data, infrared data. But he used to say, you know, he said, I, you know, I, I, I pity anyone without a PhD in physics because at night when they look at the stars, they don't really know what they're looking at, right? And I thought, you arrogant schmuck, you know? <laughs> I said, I'm fairly sure that there are poets who look at the stars and see something also equally beautiful, you know? And so, but so, no, I don't, I, I don't think in code, uh, but I, I do a very, I, I think very, I think as an epistemologist, right? I think about when I experience something or hear something, how do I know it's true? What is the evidence for it's true? What is true? You know, and so I, I think I, I think more, I think, in terms of logistical philosophy now than, than anything else. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I can sense that you're like super, super excited about what you do still. And I think I that's, 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 that's wonderful. And I mean, just getting, uh, like growing up beyond being mature, let's say, and still being excited about something is, is wonderful. And I can't see how that flame will ever. I've been, <laughs> oh, just like you, I've been given a new instrument, right? Uh-huh. And I'll never master it, but I can learn it and I can teach it and I can see how it works, right? In, you know, in progressive or jazz music, there was no touch guitar. Mm-hmm. There was a guitar. Eventually there was a Chapman stick mm-hmm. and then you came along and there was a touch guitar. So now you have an entirely new way of modeling the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say earlier, you know, I have a new microscope, but I have a new touch guitar. So it's a <laughs> way of thinking about the world and making sense of it through new kinds of evidence and understanding, right? And so, yes, I'm, it's, it's, we're tackling old problems and we're still dealing with old, difficult challenges but you know now we have data and computational methods and computational thinking that allow us to create a new set of delusions mm-hmm. that are within a framework yeah okay so as a uh, last question so you've already kind of like um, answered it partially i guess but what what do you predict for your future so for me, uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old. I'm taken over CEO, which is a little bit old to be a CEO of a tech company. My, my team are primarily in their, you know, late 20s and early 30s. Uh, I predict that we will figure out a way to take these tools and frameworks and people and put them together in a way that brings utility and value to people trying to solve hard questions. Mm-hmm. We will build a business around that. And hopefully it will be a very successful business. My personal goal is when we have achieved that success, whatever that looks like, I do want to spend my 60s. You know, I, I tell, I, I have a lot of young people over time that I've mentored and I have two daughters, 19 and 18. And I tell them, I said, your 20s are for figuring out what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Your 30s are for figuring out what you want to do. And by 40, you better be good at it, right? Mm-hmm. And so whether that's a musician or a mathematician or whatever. And of course, you know, you can't get a field prize after the age of 40, right? And I never got my field prize. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, I'm like, you know, your 40s and your 50s are for doing your thing and making sure you've made a contribution to the world and that it's significant and that you find a way to be interesting. My 60s, I'm hoping we do very well with this. I think if we do well, I do want to take some time and I want to really get back to the philosophy of mind. I mean, Hofstadter was such, he was brilliant. I mean, I'll never be that brilliant. But, you know, I have, I have a couple books that I have outlined that I want to write. Uh, one is on, you know, I've got an outline that I've been working on for probably six months now called on intelligence, animal, human, and machine. You know, what, what does it mean? You know, I've become deeply fascinated by animal intelligence. I, yeah. I have dogs and they learn and they're capable of generalizing. Are we evolving them towards, you know, someday being more intelligent than they are? What does that mean? What is human intelligence and how is it a combination of logic and emotion? And what does that mean for machines, right? I'd like to get back to the problem of general AI and metaphor and analogy and how do we build systems that model metaphor? 
lovely. It, it's not unlike how much lawn furniture should be stocked, right? <laughs> so I'd like to take what we built and then hopefully have luxury of um, <laughs> the luxury of you know doing this research and writing these books and trying to capture my own philosophical thoughts in a much more ordered and pattern recognized way. And then I really want to spend some goddamn time on the touch guitar because I feel like I am not <laughs> using that beautiful instrument that you made for me and played at that Crimson Project show, right? And mm -hmm. Jeremy Ness still tried to steal it from me. So I've got to hide it somewhere because he's he's too cheap to buy one of his own. He's going to come take mine. So, you know, so, <laughs> I've got to figure out how to so my, my prediction is we'll be very successful over the next two or three years solving interesting consumer capitalistic challenges but then I would like to apply that to more philosophical challenges, I think. Great. Thank you so much, Jim. What a great pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, very it was uh, fascinating. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll see you uh, at camp, maybe. I hope so. <laughs> and, uh, if, if not, at least I need to get over to Berlin again. We're, you know, we're building up our office in Budapest. Maybe you should come over and do a concert for us. And it's a wonderful city. You've, you've been there many yeah, times, yeah, right? Yeah, played there many times yeah <laughs> but i look forward to talking to you again very soon thank you again for having me this has been a lot of fun so i uh let me know when you want me for your podcast i'll i'll be ready i'm i'm actually having a meeting on wednesday about that so okay. yes what i would like to talk about is mathematics and music so we'll get deep let's, on math. let's do that okay yeah. wonderful thank you Marcus. bye what for now my friend yes. bye bye